Hey, I'm Adam Bricker, cinematographer of Hacks, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello, and welcome to the Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Adam Bricker, the director of photography of Hacks on HBO. Adam, welcome to the show. Oh, hey, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. There is so much that I cannot wait to get to and some topics that we haven't covered on previous episodes. So I think you guys are going to absolutely love this one. But before we get there, I want to mention MZ, Education for Creatives. They're our sponsor today, and I'll talk more about them later in the show. And of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube as well. And all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Adam, first of all, where are you calling in from? Are you in Los Angeles, New York? Yeah, Where are I'm in you? Los Angeles. I'm in Los Angeles. Are you currently working on season two of Hacks or what, what are you doing right now? No, we haven't gotten started on that on that yet. We're, um, I think they're taking a little break, a little uh, just getting rejuvenated and then they'll get back into the writer's room uh, soon and then we'll maybe start that the next calendar year. Well, the show is really, really funny. And if you guys haven't seen it, I believe all the episodes, there's 10 and I believe they're all available right now on HBO Max. Um, I want to begin our conversation with the idea of how, through cinematography, you introduce characters. Because, you know, in the pilot episode, you have such a short period of time to grab people's attention. And you're asking quite a bit of your audience. You're asking people to stay with you for hours and hours throughout all these episodes and all these seasons. So it's really important that you introduce them well. And I think on, on Hacks... You guys did a great job of introducing both characters, but particularly Deborah, which is this gorgeous one shot that opens up the pilot. Talk to me about that scene and how you approached it. Yeah, so I think for like a little a little context, um, Hacks is really it's a, it's a two hander. It's about these two women, Deborah Vance, played by Jean Smart. She is a old school Las Vegas uh, comedian from who has a residency at, the, at a casino. And from the casino's point of view, she's sort of on the, the downward slide of, of her career. She would, she would disagree. And then on the other hand, you have Ava, this young sort of millennial comedian that's come up on Twitter. And um, she's in Los Angeles. And she's been canceled due to an inappropriate and offensive tweet. Um, and ultimately, this is a story about the two of them being paired up and their careers being in very different places, but them helping one another to get to sort of where they need to go. Um, so we, it was, it was obviously like the character introductions from both of those characters were, were, were critical. Uh, and for, for Jean, we sort of start um, with the Deborah Vance character. We start with her on, on stage. And I remember when I first like got the pilot script and like the one that we opened with was, was written right in it. And it was just like, so, so wonderfully exciting and such a great opportunity for, for visual storytelling. But yeah, we start behind her and she's performing, doing the last little bit of her, her regular Las Vegas residency comedy routine at the casino. The curtain call, the curtain falls, and she sort of walks through the casino into these pools of light. We follow her in this one long shot through the hallways underneath the casino and finally into her sort of lavish old school dressing room where we first reveal her face and her vanity mirror. And it was just like such a wonderful, exciting thing. There aren't that many half hour comedy scripts that you get that have like such a knockout, like awesome cinematic first shot um, written right into them. And I think sort of figuring out 
figuring out the tone of that was like a, was a really fun challenge. Um, we wanted to sort of convey that, uh, she, that this sort of like glamorous lifestyle, um, that she, that she's living, that she's this, this, this successful comedian. Um, but at the same time also show that it's like a ton of work. Um, so as she's making her way from the, from the stage through, through backstage, you can see that there are these like assistants and all these people that are sort of, you know, she, she's working the whole way through. And then once she, once you, after you reveal in the vanity mirror and you cut to her, um, outside of the casino, you see, she's doing the autographs. She jets off to QBC, um, where she sells Deborah Vance merchandise. This is like a, this is like a work, a working lady that that's on the hustle. And this is, this is a grind, even though it is glamorous. Um, and at the same time, she's also been doing this for, for what, 20, 20 years or something like that. She's, she's decades into this career and, um, yeah, I, I, it's there's an element. It, it definitely is like maybe a little stale, but she's sort of. I we wanted to convey that she was sort of in like the rhythms of this of this routine. Um, well, it di- it didn't watching it. It doesn't seem stale at all. It t- and I'm not saying cinematography was obviously. I'm talking right. about like her her routine. It I don't think it, it it felt stale at all. If anything, you are the audience now knows that she's successful. She's a hustler. And it gives us a clue into kind of what her lifestyle is like, which I think is really important because you're asking people to pay attention and you kind of have to like these characters in order to stay engaged. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think I think what's what's exciting about it is that you can you can read it maybe a couple of ways. Like one, there's a ton of energy and she's she's awesome and you're you're very engaged and and she has this like glamorous career, but at the same time, there's like a rhythm to it where she, you, once you sort of know more, you sort of understand that she's also going through the motions a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's, what's fun about the wonder is that like, it's both exciting. It's taking you on this adventure, but it's pretty rehearsed. It's like, she knows her marks. So she's going, and this is what she does. She walks back. She says hi to this guy, goes into her dressing room, sits down, needs five minutes, and then she's off. And I think that that was a really important aspect of that wonder. What I love, what I loved about it is that immediately after that, there's all this energy in the wonder. And immediately after that, after she's gone to QVC and she arrives home, the energy sort of gets sucked out a little bit. And um, you realize, you know, she, she sits down in this sort of like wide, very composed still frame that is so, so different than the, the other frames that, you, that you've seen thus far that had a ton of energy. And she's in her kitchen and it's, mo- it's, it's naturalistically moody. She's isolated in the frame and she's eating dinner with like her two, you know, corgi dogs. And it's just like a wonderful little contrast in a, in a, in a cold open to have this great energetic wonder. And then these very isolating, um, sort of sad compositional frames of the aftermath. Um, and you realize that she has this career, but she really has no one to share it with. And I think, um, and that juxtaposition is, is, is wonderful. It was a great, great opportunity for visual storytelling. That was just to be honest, like right there, right there on the page. Yeah. It sounds like a lot of this was written on the page, like you said, but when you see something like this, first, I'm sure you're excited that you're going to be able to make a scene like this because it's a great opportunity, but also what are the responsibilities of the cinematographer in a moment like this? Like I'd mentioned, you have to introduce the characters. So what are the things that you're considering when you're putting this, these scenes together and 
what are you trying to get? Like, what are you trying to make happen in this opening scene? Yeah, I think you're, uh, well, the hacks, it's a, it's a naturalistic show. Um, that's simultaneously, uh, very, ex- I, I want it to be expressive on like a subconscious level. So I think that you're, you're trying to, to use your tools as a cinematographer to convey, to convey those ideas, this, this energy of the winner, making sure, um, working with Lucia, the director to make sure it has the right energy and, and tone and, and rhythms and that you're, you're conveying, um, both that, that excitement, but also simultaneously that, that idea that this is a rehearsed thing that she's done many times before. And then, um, you know, I think like finding compositions for those at the end of the montage after the one or when she's alone in her kitchen or when she's alone in her bed, I was just thinking like, how can we, how can we find like gorgeous wide frames to help sort of convey this, this, this sadness, um, this isolation, um, and I think you want, you know, you you want to use all of your tools there. And I, I really wanted it to sort of feel like a stay grounded and naturalistic and work on a subconscious level. So it's sort of you're just sort of riding that that tonal line. So what I think is interesting about this is that even when she's among people, she is the center of attention. She mm-hmm. is the star. And right from the beginning of the scene, um, when she's on stage, she is still surrounded by tons and tons and tons of people, but it's very much isolating. So can you talk to me about the way that you created this idea and this feeling of isolation through the cinematography? And I think it makes the most sense to start kind of at the end of that scene in this kitchen, which you've alluded to a few times. This is the first moment where we realize she is a lonely person. Despite all the success, like you said, she doesn't have anybody to share it with. And you have to make a pretty dramatic change in the tone at that moment after big long scene of showing action 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 now everything kind of comes to a stop and it has to feel real and natural and authentic tell me how you went about making that moment feel so isolated yeah i think it was i think it was about just finding finding compositions um in those spaces that help to convey that that isolation so i think you know we've John Carlos, our production designer, just built these magnificent sets. Um, her kitchen was a set. That bedroom was a set. And they, you know, they were, they, they were beautiful. And I think it was just like, you know, we, Lucia and I would use, would use Artemis on our, on our phones. And, um, you know, when we had, when we had downtime from shooting another scene, we'd walk over into one of the sets, you know, that was under construction and, you know, I'd take, try to find an angle that could maybe work for when Deborah was, was in her bed um, uh, alone at night, just before she turns off the lights and lowers the electronic curtains. And, you know, we'd text those back and forth and just sort of see like what, what, what felt right. And it was really, it was really about those compositions. I knew, I knew it's also in that contrast though. It's like, you're totally right. In the beginning, she's surrounded by people and the camera's moving with a ton of momentum and energy. And she's sort of in the center of frame and all these other people are surrounding her on the periphery and she's guiding us. And I think what that allows you to do is when you have all of that movement, um, once you cut to her house and she's alone in the kitchen or alone in the bedroom and the movement stops, subconsciously, you really feel that and you feel that change. Mm-hmm. Um, and it means it, it works on you on an emotional, emotional level. At the same time, we also felt like those shots in the kitchen, they should move a little bit, but just very differently. Um, instead of Deborah sort of driving the action like she does in the beginning where we're following her and she's dictating the camera movement, she's sort of static and we're sort of pulling back just very slowly. Um, and I think I think that's 
just like sort of works to help in that isolation. You, you sort of see that there's actually, these spaces are bigger. She's actually even more alone. Um, there's even more dead space in these compositions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting too, because all of these scenes are packed with set design. Like there is not a blank wall anywhere. Everything is full, 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 but it still feels very empty. And I'm curious if there is something in the lighting or in the cinematography or framing that is giving us this feeling of isolation, even though she is still within a very full room. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really, it's a really interesting question. I, I think like in the, in the kitchen and in the, and in, and in the bedroom, I think like we wanted to play, I wanted to play with this idea that she was coming home late at night after, you know, a hard, a very hard day's work, not only performing, but traveling around the country doing these QVC things. And that she was coming home and it was just sort of, I wanted this like kind of midnight, midnight feel to it where um, the house would sort of not, it wouldn't be like fully lights on. It would sort of be like a, a dimmer sort of, sort of vibe um, just to sort of convey that, that time of day. And then, um, so the environments are sort of naturally, um, a wash and shadow. And then, um, but we, you know, we're doing is wide composition. So we really wanted to draw your eye to, to the character. Um, so in all of those, in all of those, those wide frames, she, Deborah's sort of sitting under like a soft pool uh, of light, sort of not, not top down kind of backlit to sort of pull her off of the space. But I think that, I think that you're right, Ben, that really does sort of lend to the to the isolation like, uh, feel of the whole thing. Like she's in these, these huge, these huge spaces and she's really just spotted out from them. I don't know. Is that, is that sort of what you felt? Yeah. I think that, you know, when I'm watching it, because we've talked about isolate, creating isolation before on this show. And usually it, it does come down to framing. It comes down to, it comes down to isolating them within light. But I think there's also something about like, almost the the pacing. There's yeah. something about creating isolation in the pacing where in the beginning in that one or there's so much energy to it. And even though she's the center of the frame, she's driving everything, she very well can still feel isolated throughout those scenes. When we hit her alone in the kitchen, there's a calmness and a pace to the camera motion that I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like making you focus on her more or noticing the camera motion more, but there's something in that pacing. And I was curious if you, if I'm just looking too far into it, or do you feel that camera motion plays a part in this isolation? No, I, I certainly do. I think it's like, I think that slow pullout like tells sort of the whole, the whole story. Like she's static yeah. alone in this big wide frame and we're pulling out and revealing this empty space. I think that it's, I think that's totally right. And I think it's like we said, it's the contrast. I often think like, I think like sometimes when I have a tough time, um, cracking how to like naturalistically convey the emotions of one scene i often will look at scenes that precede it and see if there are things that we're doing there that we could contrast that could impact the scene in question and i think that um you know i think that those it's very subtle like we're 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 getting into the weeds on like this these these isolating frames it's very subtle what we're doing it's a wide isolating frame with a little bit of a pull out i think it only works because the stuff that precedes it has so much energy that you feel us pumping the brakes and if we didn't have those if we weren't using those techniques on the earlier scenes i'm not sure that these these isolating frames would have that emotional impact yeah i think that makes sense now let's talk about the other 
main character here, Ava, you now have to introduce her as well. And she has a totally different story, different background, different everything. You did a good job of explaining the differences between two characters earlier. But now you have the same job here, but with a different character, with Ava. How do you go about introducing the audience to her? Yeah. Well, you know, when we when we when we see when we see Deborah, like we just talked about, she's sort of her story is is a, is a sad one because she's sort of stuck in these rhythms and potentially about to be sort of boxed out of her career. And um, Ava is in a more frantic mode. Um, she's sort of she's just been canceled and um, lost her television deal. And we first meet her um, in her 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 manager's her manager's office where they're sort of plotting what their what their next moves could be. And the prospects just like honestly don't look look great. Um, Lucia uh, has like a wonderful uh, directing background. She directed a lot of Broad City, and um, I think like this this character is sort of like right in her her sort of visual visual wheelhouse. So um, we cut from these sort of cinematic frames of of old old Las Vegas, sort of like old Hollywood uh, Deborah filmmaking techniques, and we cut to the younger the younger Ava. It's like got a more sort of modern aesthetic to it just subconsciously but it's you know handheld um kind of you know what you know a little a little bit of a a frantic handheld sort of what you what you're sort of used to seeing when you're telling um a character of of that generation's story uh and yeah i think uh so that that's where we where we first we first met her i really wanted to play with a contrast in in the lighting between the two at the at the the, the first introduction deborah vance in, in las vegas has got this whole you know, old, old school Hollywood sort of like kind of inspired by her Vandy mirror, like glowy, warm, old fashioned theater lighting type of a thing. And, um, I was looking to go the opposite. So my first instinct was to sort of go with a cooler, a cooler palette, uh, for, for Ava. Um, but at the same time, I struggled with that early on because Ava's story is set in in Hollywood. It's a very LA story, and and that's not you know a cooler, softer palette isn't necessarily what you think of when you're when you're when you're yeah. telling that type of that type of story. So, um, what I sort of what I what we sort of came to sort of both you know was something we were thinking about, but also something we sort of not stumbled into, but just happened with some of our locations is that I would often find that. Ava's blocking would find her in, in shadow with, um, sunlight in the background. Uh, and usually that's, that's sort of, that's sort of a tough, a tough situation to be in because you're dealing with some exposure issues. It's not, it's not ideal. Um, but I thought maybe it'd be fun to sort of embrace that. So when we first meet her in that agent's office, um, we made sure that the time of day that we shot, that was a practical location. Um, the sun was sort of like washed the, the LA sun was sort of washing the hills and the ocean in the background, um, they're in this high rise building. Um, the, the building itself was in shadow. The sun was sort of, was sort of behind us. So we had this like really interesting cooler palette for Ava and this like warm LA sun in the background. And there's this great color contrast. And I think it's kind of representative in the end of her story in the beginning. She's, um, she's been canceled and really wants to make it in the television industry and, uh, the warm Los Angeles sun that she desires is always in the background out of reach. And she's sort of sadly clouded in shadow. And we carried that through, I think like once, once we stumbled into that, we carried that through to a lot of her introductory scenes. So, um, when she's on Melrose place, that cafe, 
the the building naturally blocked the sun, but we framed it in a way where across the street down Melrose, you could see all of the glamorous afternoon sunset just far in the distance. Um, even, you know, we, even in, in, in locations that we were lighting, we would, we would adapt that. Like we would strive for, for depth in our frames and in Ava's, um, house in the morning, um, and make sure that the room that she was in had cool ambient daylight that was keying her and the background rooms would have sunlight. And we just sort of kept that as sort of a, a motif, um, that was representative of her, of her story when we first meet her. I noticed that right away. In fact, there were moments when when I was watching the scenes, particularly in the manager's office, where I was like, "Is this in New York?" It, because it 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 almost felt like there was that coolness. Almost felt like the city kind of New York look that you get a lot of times in film and TV shows. And yeah. I loved how you were blending the cool with the warm in her story. So many times people represent Los Angeles, and it's just hot and dry looking and orange and super, super warm. And I understand they have to do that to differentiate. Maybe it takes place, you know, in England or in, you know, uh, New York, London, wherever. And you have to do that. But I think I, I loved, I, I loved when you have, when you're contrasting Las Vegas and Los Angeles, they both kind of have a similar look, you know, in and of themselves. So you differentiated them by incorporating some cool light. I thought that was such a great choice. And it's interesting to hear, you know, thematically, it works with uh, Ava as a character because she's always reaching for that glitz and glamour of L.A., but is still kind of in the shadow of this cold, cool environment. I thought that was really, really cool. Um, my question, <laughs> despite that super long lead up, is just your general feelings and the challenges of when you are blending cool and warm light within the same scene. Um there has to be some accommodation you need to make just for skin tone alone. I mean, where, uh, how do you balance those out? Yeah, I think finding, I think finding the right level of, of cool is, is sort of key. And I think, uh, I didn't want it to feel like, uh, overly manipulated or like, you know, heavy handed in any way. I really wanted it to feel just, just naturalistically what was occurring, um, I mean, when you're in, when you're in ambient, ambient light, it's naturally cooler. And I wanted to sort of just be embracing that as opposed to manipulating the image. Uh, I think we really found that balance actually in, in color correction. We built, we built different LUTs for the two characters to sort of have a little bit of a contrast and the LUT that we made, uh, for, for Ava initially, um, kind of embraced those those cooler tones, and and on its own, it's 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 a it's really gorgeous and feels naturalistic. But I found once I got into the color correct with my colorist uh, Shane Reed that when you contrasted it with Deborah's, it felt it felt jarring, and I I didn't want it to feel I didn't mm. I didn't want that. I, it needed to be a, more subtle than that, and a little more nuanced. It it wants to be distinctly cooler, but but not something that feels manipulated. So I think it was just sort of weaving weaving through that in the color correct and just making minor minor adjustments to make sure we achieved the balance that that that, that helps and, and was appropriate so that's interesting the LUT that you created for on set was you guys are working with it it felt fine but when you brought yeah, it, it into great. color it didn't feel right yeah and i think that you know that 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 happens a lot. The LUT itself felt felt great. It was more that it was just too. It ended up being too severe, like on its own. When you weren't mm -hmm. looking at it next to anything, it felt like it was perfect and told the story. 
Um, it was only when you started cutting back and forth between Las Vegas and LA and going from this warmer vintage to this sort of modern, cooler thing that we just had to sort of work to figure out a to figure out the balance. And it was really just like a there was no it wasn't a science to it, it was a taste thing as we were navigating the color correction. I think the best example of that blending between cool and warm is the shot that you sent us in the in your uh, initial email to us when we asked you for some some scene examples you wanted to talk about yeah. is that bathroom scene uh, where you have kind of Ava in the foreground and her bedroom in the background uh, the windows there like that is pretty much a- as as contrasty as you can get um, mm. not con- contrast by way that you're thinking color contrasting color contrast between the yeah. cool light in the foreground in the dark in the warm light in the background I mean I'm sure we'll put an image of that up while you guys are watching on YouTube but Talk to me about that frame, that scene in particular, and how you achieved it. Yeah, I think we were. I, lo- I love that frame, and we we had um, we had scouted that location, you know, very early on, and that Lucia was looking hard for a for a location that worked where we could shoot through through a bathroom. That the, the story at that point is that um, this is the morning after Ava, at a very low point, has um, slept with her her postmate. So she's she's sitting on the toilet talking to her manager. She's reached rock bottom and is willing to accept the job to go to Deborah Vance in Las Vegas. Um, and then we sort of rack focus back from Ava on the toilet to the postmate, um, sort of remembering that he's still there and he's in the bed. And um, we we knew that we we found that we'd found that frame um, really early on and, and had shot that on had shot that on Artemis with maybe our location manager or something sitting on the toilet and knew that that was going to be what the, the hero frame that the scene was structured around. And then it was just sort of one of those lucky things of the schedule. Like we, by the, by the time we got to that uh, house, um, we had already shot the Melrose location and sort of knew that we were going for this mixed color palette theme for the early Ava introductory scenes. And um, so we just were, it was, a, it was, a, it was easy at that point. We knew what we were going to do. And we, we did soft ambient, ambient light through um, kind of a frosted glass window that preexisted in, in the bathroom to key Ava from the outside in. And then um, use some mirrors and some, some HMIs to push some, some warmer daylight into the background to sort of have the, the post made on the bed and a, and a warm sunlit glow. And it's great. You really feel that, that color contrast in a very naturalistic way. It's, it's what would naturally occur in that bathroom. We're just sort of embracing that and then amplifying it. One thing about um, hacks is that these characters, they certainly contrast, yes. But there's also so much similarity between Ava and Deborah, like they are almost the yin to each other's yang. And you do have to create contrast between them, but there also has to be something similar about them. Um, Even at the end, I think of the second episode when she's at that, I don't know, antique shop or whatever it was, uh, picking up the um, salt shaker. She has a conversation with the guy there and he had said like, you're you're just like her. Like he even references the fact that he's, that Ava's very much like Deborah. So, there are moments where you need to understand that they're different people coming from different places, but you have to also understand the similarities between the two. And I think one of those scenes is when they first meet and they are in Deborah's home and they're having that face-off where they're sitting in the big grand, uh, you know, living room, sitting room. They meet for the first time and it's basically like almost a roast of each other. Like they're, they're having like a, a, a 
comedic battle against each other and insulting each other back and forth, but they go toe to toe. And I think that's when you realize that these characters really are one and the same. So I'd love for you to talk to me about now that you've introduced both characters, you also now have to film them when they're together and Mm. show their chemistry. Talk to me about the way you approach that scene and maybe just give a little bit of context about what that scene is prior. Yeah, so this is this is now um, Ava's Ava's been sent um, to Las Vegas to uh, work for Deborah Vance. Um, Deborah didn't even know she was coming, or she was sort of they were both sort of tricked into this into this meeting, um, and they're going to have an, an interview in in Deborah's sort of lavish lavish living room, um, and it's the first time that we've seen these two lead characters together. It's at the very the very end of very end of the pilot. Um, and it's a, it's a great it's a great scene, and I think when you're like going back to when I first read the script, it's like this scene. It was just so well written and perfect. This pilot just ends with like such a wonderful bang, and um, then you have these two you know great actresses that are going to have this sort of this sort of face off. Um, and yeah, so we, you know, in a, in a, it was in, a, in approaching it, you know, early on, my first conversations with with the team and with Lucia. Um, like I said, she has such a strong comedy directing background. Um, her her instinct uh, from the get go was that there were going to be a few select scenes that we would be best served if we cross shot them. So you know that means like a mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a very common uh, comedy uh, technique where a camera is essentially over both characters' shoulders. And what's great about it is that it allows for um, improvisation and um, timing. Um, and real, it's, you know, and you can really capture, uh, our, these two performances in a, in a, in a, in a wonderful way that translates into the edit without having to do sort of one, one side at a time. The downside to that is that it's, it's a, it's a huge struggle from, from a, a lighting perspective. Um, and at first I was sort of like, you know, I, re- I'd read the pilot without having spoken to anyone and you have, you know, it's such a, a, a beautifully written scene and it's, it's so, um, the images that came to my head immediately were so filmic and um, striking that when uh, I learned that, you know, this was a scene that we desired to cross shoot, I was, I was a little nervous. I was like, how, how can we pull off the images that I have in my head um, under those scenarios? Uh, The challenge is that, you know, essentially uh, where the lighting should be for one camera would be revealed by the other. So you're sort of, you're sort of in a, in a box. It's hard to create, uh, con- the contrast that I think that that scene sort of deserves on the page. Um, so it's quite the challenge, but I think like we were all, you know, we were all uh, up for it and uh, Lucia knew that it was the right thing. And she was, she was totally right. It absolutely was that scene, that scene works so, so well because, because we went to the lengths to cross shoot it. And, you know, we, we sort of worked with, with John Carlos, the production designer to, um, design that living room set and the staging of the, the furniture and worked with Lucia on her blocking to make sure that um, their key lights were built into the environment and could be sort of seen on camera. So the room is structured. It's this sort of trio of these huge um, windows with sort of floor to ceiling um, shears. Um, and the two of them are facing off on these couches centered on that center window. Uh, 
And, um, we, we just, we just built, built the lighting into the set, a mix of different qualities of light coming through those windows, some soft light kind of half lighting both of them, and then some harder light bouncing off the floor between them. And we just found, we found a way to, 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 to make it work so that the images that were initially, um, in my head when I first read the script without limitations, um, we were able to sort of capture those while cross shooting. And I'm so proud of it. It worked, it worked out so well. Yeah, it does. I mean, were you kind of bummed when you first heard that it was going to be cross shot? I mean, it it sounds like you sort of had an idea of what you wanted to do and making this uh, scene cross shot sort of deviated you a little bit. I think that there's, there's always limit limitations. Um, and I do, I do think, you know, what I'm happy about is that, um, I had enough time to read the scripts and um, come, you know, figure out like what I wanted it to be without, without limitations. And I think that's sort of, I, I've always found that that's the right way to, to approach everything. There's going to be limitations, for, whether it's cross shooting or a location isn't the way that you imagined it in your head. I mean, that happens all the time. And yeah, yeah. I think what's really important is building uh, a creative foundation ahead of time so that you know sort of what you're trying to achieve um, so that when you come into a location or a style of shooting, um, that limits you, you aren't, you aren't letting that necessarily dictate the direction you're going to go in. You sort of know where you want you, where you want to get to creatively and you do then the extra work with those limitations to figure out what the end goal is. I think if you approach it, if you approach it the other way around, um, and you let, you let the limitations, uh, dictate the, the creative, I at least personally find that I get a little lost and I'm not, I'm not totally sure what I'm doing. So, um, I don't, I, it wasn't that I was bummed. It was just, you know, uh, how can we pull this off? Like how can we, in a new way, how can we all work together to, to, to achieve, um, this and make this, make the scene, make the lighting in the scene, um, match the rest of the show, um, which wasn't necessarily cross shot and had like a filmic, um, sort of like emotional quality to it. Um, how can we sort of maintain that and sort of be able to cross shoot this while hiding the fact that we're cross shooting it? You know what I mean? I just didn't want you to feel yeah. like all of a sudden the, the lighting was drastically different or wasn't wasn't as expressive as it had been. So yeah, I think we I think it was good that we I, we knew where we were going and we were all able to work together to achieve that end goal. Now let's take a quick break and talk about MZ empowering filmmakers. I love that new tagline of theirs because that is honestly like exactly what they do. You can think of MZ as like the Netflix of filmmaking education. You know, you can go on there, uh, become an MZ Pro member, you get access to everything that is there and you can just learn. You know what I mean? You just learn from the best. Now I'm talking about subject matter that is perfect for all of us. You know, directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, all of those things, like all the stuff that we want to know and be better at. It's hundreds of hours of this stuff. It's all video-based filmmaking education, really high-end. It looks great. It's produced extremely well. And I think the best part is that these courses are taught by people that you know and love, people that are working in the industry. I'm talking about Vincent Laferay, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom, Tom Cross, the editor of La La Land and Whiplash. He does a course called The Art and Technique of Film Editing. They have a new course called Indie Film Blueprint 
that is basically a roadmap for how to plan and sell your first indie feature. This is like, this is the type of stuff that we want to know here at Go Creative Show. Now, yes, you can go and buy individual courses at MZ, but what I suggest you do is become an MZ Pro member because like I said, it's the Netflix of filmmaking education. It will allow you to have access to everything. You know, like I, I direct, I shoot a little bit, I do a ton of editing. And yeah, I want to hone those skills, but there might be something in there that I'm not particularly good at or just mildly interested in, but kind of want to play with a little bit. So I may not invest in a course about DaVinci Resolve if I was just buying individual courses, but as an MZ Pro member, I'm going to play around with the DaVinci Resolve courses because I want to learn these things. And that's kind of what, you know, that's really the benefit of becoming an MZ Pro member is just having access to all of it. Now, you get 20% off of your purchase um, by simply typing in GCS20, GCS20. That's your promo code. You get 20% off either individual courses or an MZ Pro membership. So there's really no reason not to go and check it out for yourself. And it's easy to do. Go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, M-Z, empowering filmmakers. So let's talk about the benefits of cross-shooting, right? So we talked about the challenges, but what what are the benefits? Well, I think it's like you have these electric performances. I mean, Gene, like uh, Gene Smart's incredible, and 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 Hannah Einbender, she comes from uh, an improv comedy stand-up sort of background, and it's the first time seeing the two of them together in the scene, and um, it's sort of rapid fire back and forth, and you're going to be able to capture that and get both sides simultaneously. I think that that. Um, really does justice to the performances and to the script, that style of shooting. I mean, it's it's wonderful. And as far as, you know, the camera and the lighting, are there any benefits to you as a cinematographer, as a, you know, a director of photography for these cross-shot scenes? Yeah, I think, well, I think that you're, you're um, you know, our, first and foremost, the, the goal is to sort of help, help the director to, to tell the story and to capture the performance. And, um, I think uh, I think that we're, we're by using our cameras in this way, we're, we're sort of we're helping her to do that. And then um, I don't know. I think maybe I think maybe there are some like one of the, I, there's some other benefits to it that just are sort of side effects of the process. So it's like uh, we we were able to light it in, in the way that we want, but perhaps it's like maybe just slightly more naturalistic than it would have been otherwise. Like maybe there's like it's like 10% rougher than it would have been if we could have just massaged one angle at a time. And maybe there's some, there's some, some benefits to that that were sort of un, unexpected and there's some happy accidents there. Um, yeah. If, I don't know. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah. Because I think there, there's gotta be something to the, the pace of it from, you know, just how many shots you can get done in a day and that, and just blowing through a scene, there's gotta be like some feeling of momentum on set when you're cross shooting and you know you're blowing through pages quick, it's good. And you don't, and knowing like, now that I've had this performance, you're not like thinking about the second angle of the same scene. You're just kind of letting it happen organically. I'm wondering, does it, does it contribute to a, a, a momentum or a vibe on set when you're cross shotting? Just knowing that oh, you're yeah, getting through things double the speed. I don't know if it's getting through things double the speed. I don't know if that, I, but I, I think it is, like, I, like I think our, our, uh, 
Lucia and our AD team did like a great job of prioritizing scenes that we knew were going to be super important. So it was a, it was a tight, tight television schedule on top of that being, you know, the show from beginning to end was 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 made during the pandemic, so we had reduced time as, you as shot it was. This it was whole just, thing during the yeah, pandemic, and not just shot it, but they they wrote it on Zoom during the pandemic, and we they edited wow. it, reviewed cuts on iPads. Yeah, so it was an entire pandemic production. So we were squeezed from a schedule perspective, but um, you know we we really prioritized the scene. So it wasn't that we were we we had enough time to do this. I think maybe a a day or two days were allocated just to this, this one, this one conversation um, because we all knew how critical it was uh, to the story and, and to the, the end, the end of the pilot. And it's a scene that we all love. So we wanted to make sure that we had enough time to, to execute it. So the, the choice to cross shoot wasn't uh, a logistical one. It was purely, purely a performance one that said, like, I think, you know, on set when you're looking at a and B monitors and it's, it's Gene smart and Hannah and they're going back and forth and you can basically, you know, watch the scene as it unfolds and you can see how, how great it is. I mean, that, that's fun for everyone. That's going to be so great for comedy too, just to like, let oh, yeah. the, let the performers do their thing. It's all about timing. I mean, it's, everything's about timing, but comedy in particular seems like it's so much about the timing that not having to disrupt it and not having to do other takes from different angles. Just, I, I feel like there'd be a freedom in that. Yeah, I mean, we would also. There were other scenes um, later in the season that that weren't necessarily comedic, that were that were dramatic. Where the for the for these two characters, there's a scene. Um, you now there's a scene. I think it's in maybe episode nine, um, where the two of them are having kind of a blow up in front of Deborah's vanity, and that was another scene that she like pinned right away as like we've got to cross shoot this one for performance. Um, and once again, she was like totally right, and that one was a equally a challenge. Like we've we've shot so many scenes in, in this dress room that were that were filmic and and weren't shot in this manner. How do we seamlessly blend this one in? Um, it's one of our most important scenes. You don't want to have it, you know, you don't want to make a visual sacrifice on it. And it was a, a similar approach, like a team effort to find a way to stage it around some lighting that John Carlos was able to build into the set so that we could see the key light physically um, and still have it in the right position and have it match um, the emotion of the scene, but also the other scenes that we'd shot. So yeah, I think cross-shooting, it's not just a, a comedy thing. I think it's true. It, it works great for comedy, but it also is a wonderful way to capture performance. I think the lesson here, and you've said it twice now, is let your key light be visible. It seems like that, you know, in the case of the scene we, we talked about first is the big windows. I think that makes sense. It's like, if you can give your audience, if you can let your audience understand where the light is coming from, it, it feels a little bit more natural. I think that that yeah. seems to be the lesson learned here. Totally. And then I think it's thinking about like, for me, it was thinking about like, okay, well, if I wasn't cross-shooting this, where would, where would I put the key? um, to light this scene. Okay. I would see that position in another camera. How can I put something in there practically with John Carlos in that ideal key position that can work to illuminate them? So I, you know, I think that, yeah, you nailed it. Let's talk about some gear, some equipment. Um, what did you shoot hacks on? Uh, I want to, I want to know about the camera lenses, all of it. Yeah. So we shot on the Panavision, uh, DXL2. Uh, and that is a, a camera that came out a couple of years ago. It's a collaboration between, I believe, Panavision and, and Light Iron, which is a Panavision subsidiary, and Red. 
And it's a, it's a, a red Monstro uh, sensor in this sort of um, package that is, that is panavised. Um, my whole career, I've, I've always, I've always shot on red. I, uh, graduated uh, from film school um, in, two, in 2009 and um, with my two best friends um, invested in a red one and um, would use that on small projects, music videos, short films. Um, we would rent that out and, and it was an investment for us and um, not just, you know, financially, but also sort of in our careers. And that's um, from, from that, from that, you know, I've, I've had great success working with that camera sort of graduated through, through the red system throughout, throughout my career. Um, and was introduced to the, to the DXL2 and, um, was, I'm just so familiar shooting on red that it was, you know, I, I loved it from, from the get go when I, when I first shot on it a couple of years ago. Um, so we used, we used the DXL2 and we paired it with, um, Primo 70 lenses from, from Panavision. Um, when I first was introduced to the camera and that lens system, I was shooting the second season of a, of a series called, uh, sorry for your loss, um, and inherited that same sort of camera package from the season, the season one DP. And he had worked, um, with uh, Guy McVicker at Panavision to customize customize the Primo 70s for that series. Um, and I was introduced to Guy and uh, just he he's really into this this custom optics philosophy where you you take these lenses and 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 you tweak them um, to help tell your story. Uh, and since since that introduction, I've sort of just fallen in love with that process and I'm uh, the type of DP that from the get-go, I'm constantly gathering reference images. And I used to do that primarily for composition and, and for lighting. My script is sort of littered with images. Um, and I, I share those with the gaffer and I share those with my operators. And um, after working with Guy for a couple of years, I found that I could send him those same images, some key images, and he would help me to design uh, lenses that would um, emulate characteristics of those references. So for this, this project, um, we were strongly referencing behind the candelabra, which is a, a beautiful, uh, film that's set in Las Vegas in primarily in this sort of like gaudy, rich apartment, big sheared windows, Las Vegas sun, similar to kind of the aesthetic that we were going for in the Deborah Vance, the Deborah Vance mansion. And we were also looking at uh, this uh, movie Judy, which is which is also gorgeous. And I sent I sent Guy clips from from both and told him sort of what I liked about it. And I don't know exactly what he does, but he um, sort of changes the recipe and tweaks the, the Primo seventies to match. And it's great because you can go in and see a test and see sort of a before and after, and then um, you can make an adjustment. Like actually, I, I you know I love guy i love how that shear is blooming but i wish it could be 15 percent more could i see what that looks like and yeah, i'm um, like fascinated with this process because a lot of dps come on the show they talk about the you know customizations they made on their lenses no one really quite knows exactly what is being done there's kind of some secret right. sauce behind the scenes happening Certainly. but uh, like the, the the process of getting lens customized uh lenses customized i'm curious about that like you said it starts at visual references and then your, I guess the person you were working with, they're just interpreting from those references ways to customize their lens package. That's, it seems like that's exactly. 
That's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's this is here. Here are some visual references, and here's sort of what I like about this. And like, why why is this happening around the corners, or how can we achieve something similar but not that extreme? And what's great about it is that you can tweak and adjust and make fine you know finite adjustments to to the optics. Um, and in the past, uh, I would go in for a lens test, and you're you're basically you know testing maybe five or six or you know dozens of lenses, but it's you know it is they are what they are, and you're sort of reacting, reacting to them, A versus B. And, you know, I like this one more. Whereas here, I feel, I feel empowered because you have a little bit of agency over, over exactly what you're doing. Um, and you you can say, oh, that's too much or too little and, and, and adjust it. And in the end, it's, it's magical because you have a set of lenses that's completely unique to your production. Nobody's ever shot them before. I love that. So when you're showing those references, just what, what can you pinpoint a couple of things you were asking for? We wanted, we were shooting, you know, 8K on the DXL2 and the Primo 70s are newer lenses. Um, and they're, they're out of the box. They're, they're gorgeous, but they're, they're it's, a, it's a sharp lens. And um, I liked that uh, the references we were using had a, had a softer quality to them. Um, Board, you know, borderline vintage, sometimes very vintage, vintage in, in other instances. And I wanted to emulate that to give the show a naturalistic softness. Um, I also loved how in Behind the Candelabra, I just loved how the shears sort of had like a little bloom and a little bit of a glow. And I wanted to, I wanted to capture that and have that, have that baked in. There was also uh, concern uh, due to the fact that we were shooting on during the pandemic that we wouldn't be able to use atmosphere and um a lot of the images that i had pulled as reference um had haze and just you know sometimes pretty heavy atmosphere so a guy was able to magically build a little bit of atmosphere into the glass so that when there was a bright source it would sort of halate and we would get some we would get close to the references without having to practically use fog on set um yeah, I think you know it was it was it was great. It was it was really great, and you know Lucia and uh, my camera operators, we were able to go into Panavision and see sort of where the lenses were at. And I, I do remember that, like as we as we got towards the end of the process, we were talking about uh, a specific scene with with Deborah performing on the stage and wanting. Guy was asking us like how we wanted the the flares to feel. And uh, my instinct is that we wanted them to be warmer. And I believe that naturally the Primo 70s flare kind of cooler and shift towards blue. Um, And he was like, what about instead of just warm, we go with like a little, a rainbow effect. Um, And it just was like a, a, like a magical, like last minute adjustment that that we made. Um, But some of my favorite frames in in the series embrace guys, guys customized rainbow in the Primo 70s, where when the, when the light hits it, you see, the, the light sort of reflects and refract into this this rainbow pattern. And it, I don't know, it feels just like instinctually very right for the show. Custom lenses seem to be, like that whole process just seems uniquely reserved for higher-end projects. I mean, do you hear of anyone ever doing this for smaller budget stuff, smaller commercial work? Like, can a person that is just, you know, working on corporate video, can you get access to custom lenses? How, how does that even happen? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not totally sure. I think that we should both be advocating for the uh, the democratization of uh, of custom optics because it really is like I, a magical I, a magical way to work. I'm like, is there a person? Is there like a tech that does this that just can kind of be your liaison between the the 
rental house and you yourself? Like, is there a person that does this? And anybody listening, if you guys know of who that is, I would, I'd love to know because I feel like this idea of customizing lenses is, is awesome. People should be able to have access to it. And, um, you know, maybe it's just as simple as hiring like one person for a couple of days to do some tweaking. It, it could make a huge, huge difference in your projects. Um, I just don't know how that's done or who does that. Yeah, I don't know either. They've got some secret sauce. I do know that it's a very, um, it's a very labor intensive process, and uh, I, I, we try to give guy enough lead time. But sort of, it was a three, it was a three camera show. So there were a lot of lenses to customize once yeah, we yeah, once yeah. we figured out the recipe. And toward the end, there he was pretty stressed trying to get them all done in time. So there's a lot of work that goes into it. Well, it might just be something reserved for the higher end stuff, but maybe there's an industry there that we don't even know of of people that can do some kind of low budget customization just to give it something. I mean, I'm sure probably the fix is adding some filtration and just using that as kind of your customization or your recipe, if you will. But um, that'd be kind of cool to explore that. Actually, on that note, are you using any filtration in front of your lenses? No, we didn't. We didn't use any filtration. We had it all sort of built into the optics themselves. So no, there weren't any soft filters or anything like that. Yeah. Is that normal for you or do you, do you tend to like putting filters? You just didn't on this one or do you not I, like know, I, I, we, we, we built our, um, we, we, we really finally adjusted our, our softness in that, in that custom optics process. So, um, I felt really good. I felt really good with where we were at. Um, we, we tested like many different degrees of softness and different types when the custom optics. So, um, yeah, we no no filtration. I mean, I think that you know there but are I guess some. Just in general, I guess there's like, some, are you uh, just in general? Do you do you tend to like using filters, or do you try to avoid them? Uh, no, I don't. I don't have a philosophy on it. It's really it's really project to project and whatever sort of feels right in the story. I know there's a lot of uh, we've had people on this show that are sort of like I I spent all this money renting a lens package. And the last thing I want to do is put a piece of cheap glass in front of it. Like that's, mm. I, I've, I've heard that before. Um, and making those changes in the customization of the lenses or even in color grade. But then also uh, we've had like Dana Gonzalez who, who has shot Fargo, who has like stacks and stacks of filtration that he'll never tell anybody what his recipe is. But oh, that's cool. he's a big advocate for having like a really unique, even I was invited to the set of Fargo season four and even like, you know, there's no labeling on, on the filters. Like they're, they're like scraped oh, off. Like secret, nobody, secret. nobody knows. I don't even think his, uh, his ACs know. I think it's really, you know, information held close to the vest. Um, but I, everybody kind of has a different standpoint on it. I was curious if, if you did as well, but it seems like you use it if you need to, or you don't, who cares? Yeah, I think that I think that summarizes it. I think it's, I think it's fun that he has that custom, that custom filter pack. I'm a firm believer in like, Every, you know, you, everyone has like their own little like unique things and you, um, I think what's interesting about, you know, for DPs, it's like, I don't, I don't get to see what other DPs do. So you sort of have your own, yeah. you're sort of out there and you do your own thing and you hear about other things. Um, but you sort of, you sort of find your own, your own path and, and your own sort of tricks and techniques that work for you. And those become the things that you, you do. Those are just, I, I think that's fun. I think it was the DP for Honey Boy, I want to say, if that was from a few years back. Um, she put all, she put like, she put like, like P 
paints and stuff on the glass itself. Like she had like this little toolkit, if I remember correctly. Um, and she had these things that she was like smudging on the lenses, but each one was different. It wasn't, it wasn't just random, like throw Vaseline on the lens. It was like very specific sets of, you know, ointments and materials that she'd put on the lens to get different effects in essence, kind of customizing the lens, but it wasn't done in the optics. It was done I mean, on I think the glass. that's so cool. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. I want to know more about oh that. Oh my God. Now, now I want to remember, I mean, I'll, I'll, let me see if I can, um, creativeshow.com. Yeah. I would love to, you know, mention that on the show because it was a really good episode and she did it. She did a good job explaining it. I think it was Honey Boy. Hmm. Let me see. I'm going to look really quick while we're talking. Yes, Natasha Breyer. That's right. So it's on gocreativeshow.com. You can just search Honey Boy and you'll find it or Natasha Breyer, but Honey Boy is probably easier to spell. Um, back in January 28th, 2020, before the world went crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It Doesn't it seem like a whole different time? Um, I know. Yeah. So yeah, she talks about that. So that that's kind of interesting. And I've been seeing people customize in those ways as well. So it's it's all over the map. And that's the whole fun of talking to you guys is you're telling us all your little tips and tricks. And actually on that note, um, as we wrap up, I'd love to just get some thoughts from you on advice for new and aspiring filmmakers. We've got a lot of them listening to the show. They're oh, yeah. trying to figure out how to get their, get their foot in the door, especially now, like kind of, you know, post-pandemic, hopefully, fingers crossed, post-pandemic. Um, how to get in the door, how to, how to start. Do you have any advice for them? Yeah. I mean, I can, you know, I, like I said, I, I, I went to, went to film school, um, and, um, graduated film school. And, uh, I, st I studied cinematography, or studied production with an emphasis on cinematography undergrad at, at USC. And, um, when I graduated, I, my initial thought was that I would sort of, um, work up the ranks, um, starting as a, I started as a second AC and I think I was accumulating days to potentially join the union and envision that I would eventually become a first AC and an operator and then ultimately uh, a DP. And early on, um, I was working on a feature with, a, uh, as a second AC and an independent movie that was shooting in LA, um, small, low budget thing with a great DP. His name is Tim Naylor. He'd flown into New York and he's just like a, a wonderful guy and was an early mentor of mine. And one day at lunch, um, we were getting to know each other and he's like, what do you, you know, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a camera assistant? I was like, no, actually I, I want to be a, want to be a DP. Here's my plan. He was like, I don't know. I think if you want to be a DP, you, you got to be a DP. You got to kind of quit this cold Turkey. And his point was that, you know, if you, if you want to shoot, you've got to shoot. And, um, his philosophy was that, uh, crewing and maybe joining the union was, uh, potentially just like a, a financial trap. Um, and would mm. potentially slow my, slow my path. And I don't know, I took his advice to heart and, um, kind of gave that a shot and quit crewing, you know, cold Turkey as much as I could. I still, I still needed to to pay the rent and stuff like that, but, but just tried my, my, my darndest to, to only, only work as a, as a DP. And, and that meant like shooting some of the like weirdest projects. Like I would wake up every morning and at the time there was like, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a website, mandy.com that would have crew list postings or like Facebook and, and Craigslist. And I had like a little form letter and, and a resume and a reel and whatever the projects were that were looking for DPs in the area, I would apply. And, um, 
uh, you know, offer my services. I had the benefit of, I own this, this red one camera. So when I would get the jobs, um, that were extremely low budget, we're talking like, you know, uh, not even commercials, like little industrial videos or, you know, last minute short films that kids were making or, you know, music videos. I would, I would be able to bring enough tools where I could get, um, I could get something, something out of it. And, um, um, I wasn't, I wasn't totally hamstrung by the, by the lack of, lack of resources, but I sort of just like went headfirst all in on those things. And those, you know, the Craigslist short film, I would, um, approach it. Like I was coming into production on like a dream, you know, Christopher Nolan movie or something like that you just would go sort of go sort of all in and, and give it your all. And, um, I think like I carried that philosophy throughout my, the, the early days of my still, uh, young career. And, um, I think what happens is that, uh, when you, when you work like that and you give it your all, I think when the opportunities sort of do present themselves, you're, you're ready for them. And, and one thing sort of leads to another. And my, my path out of film school into working professionally wasn't, um, what I expected, I think like, you know, it was a, a short film that I, that I made, um, that was extremely low budget that got me a, a branded, uh, commercial campaign through those two directors knowing one another. And then that branded campaign wound up introducing me to the team that made chef's table. Like it was just like a, a very strange sort of path. Um, and then, you know, even when I got, when I got chef's table, it was like, that was, at the time, you know, it was a, it was a food a food uh, documentary, which wasn't what I envisioned I would be shooting coming out of film school. I was like, I want you know, maybe I want to be shooting Batman, um, but you know, you you attack that that food documentary with enthusiasm and try to find your voice in it and make it a cinematic experience, um, and that leads to something great, which leads to the next thing. So I don't know. I think I don't know if that's not to say that like my my path is the right path. It was just the path that I, that I took. And I guess it's a long winded way of just saying like, get out there and, and shoot and shoot with passion and, um, be very open-minded to, um, the journey your career could take. So I know you also shot chef's table and I'd like to just quickly talk to you about that too, because that's kind of an unusual show to shoot prior to something like hacks. I mean, it's, so much food photography. There's certainly documentary style to it as well. Um, it's just an overall great show that people love. But tell me about your experience on Chef's Table and maybe some of the lessons that you learned from it. Yeah, well, I think it, I think it directly connects to sort of what we were talking about with like coming up as like a how to how to how to break into cinematography and the mentality that you that you have to have as a young cinematographer, where you're sort of just you're an optimist and. Uh, the opportunities that come that come your way, you you attack them full on. And like I said, like coming out of film school, um, culinary documentaries uh, wasn't it wasn't a passion of mine. Uh, it wasn't what I what I thought I would be shooting. But when when the opportunity presented itself to um, shoot this 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 food series, it was one of the first. I think it was maybe the first documentary that Netflix the Netflix had made. Um, and to shoot like a visually a visually forward uh, food documentary. I guess I'm shortchanging it. You know, it was based on 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 Jiro Dreams of Sushi. David Gelb had made that that documentary and created Chef's Table, so there was already like a expectation that it was going to be a, a visually a visually forward show. Um, but when you're presented with that with that with that 
with that opportunity, I think you just kind of go in head on and try to find your angle and, and make it, make it your own. Um, I had never shot food before. I had never shot a documentary before. Um, so, so you're I the think, perfect you know, guy for the job. <laughs> some of that, I was the right guy yes. for the job. I think maybe, you know, I worked with uh, cinematographer Will Basanta in that first season. It was six episodes. Um, Will shot three and I shot three. And I remember like I, we were gearing up for the first the first episode uh, that we were going to shoot it was an episode I was making with director Brian McGinn in Australia. And I put together this gear list and we sent it off um, to get approved and like pre-approved by customs with a carnet to Australia. And we sent it to the, the, the local producer there, Michael Hilliard. And, and he got it and he emailed back and was like, I don't, you know, I'm a little nervous about this gear list. Like there are no, there are no zooms on, on the gear list. Um, I had just included a set of, of cinema prompts. Um, and I was like, no, yeah, I think like, you know, I didn't realize like how one, how convenient a zoom would be on a documentary being that I'd never done it before. But, um, I also just like sort of envisioned making Will and I envisioned making the show like, like a movie and telling the sort of like heroes, heroes journey and shooting it as cinematic, um, as possible. So it was sort of just like that. Uh, it was, I think the success of the visuals on that show are sort of threefold. It's, it's, it's one, it's like just being naive and not doing what you would typically do in a documentary. Yeah. Um, and then two, sort of making it, making it your own and, and taking the cinematic approach and being like, you know, I want, I want to make movies and I want to tell stories that are, that are visual and, and, and emotional and, um, you know, how, how can I do that in this, this, this medium that I didn't expect? And then three, it's, it's, it's so um, important to have um, the support of all of production, not just, not just, uh, you know, the director, obviously, and your camera team, but, you know, uh, producers and, and, and making sure that everyone is, is on board um, with telling the story uh, in, in, in a visual way. And um, that show is really, the cinematography that show is a team effort. I'm, it isn't, it isn't easy to schedule a documentary around, um, the sun position uh, and they make their, their best efforts to sort of pre-scout these locations and um, build a schedule that is uh, conducive to capturing naturalistically beautiful images. So and food, um, I mean, food yeah, is such good. a, I and mean, food, I'm guessing, yeah. did you guys have like, did you have food stylists on that show or did you just leave it up to the chefs to create exactly what you shot? No, no, no food stylists needed because we're, we're documenting, documenting the stories of, of the world's, the world's greatest chefs and, and they're, um, they're, they're, they're incredible at what they do. They so, are, but uh, what they, no, what they it's, do, it's, it's all, what they do is meant to be, you know, on the plate and to be seen, you know, like this, looking down on it at a table, you're sitting there, you're looking at it. Once you start incorporating cameras in different angles, um, not having a food style, I mean, that just goes to show you the quality of the the preparation and, and the look of everything that they're creating. But I mean, the experience of getting a plate at a oh, restaurant, I don't know, I don't know how much different. credit, I don't know how much credit I can take. I don't know how much credit I can take. These are these, you know, you mentioned, I appreciate that. And I think it lends to the documentary feel <laughs> for sure. Um, but it's just kind of interesting to see that that's coming right from the, right from the chef. So Food is tough to, food is tough yeah, to show. So, it's so it's so like talented. showing talent then, without makeup like, on. It's scary. 
it can get scary. But before, I just wanted to ask you about the lenses. You had mentioned that you didn't include any zooms in that package. Did you end up going back and adding zooms to that show? God, I don't think so. I think maybe as like a stylistic choice on some episodes that we wanted to have a zoom, but it's it's typically a show um, that's almost exclusively shot on primes. And I think sort of what, I think like one of the unexpected side benefits of that is that when you're shooting a verite documentary scene on a zoom, um, you're sort of, I think you're sort of in, you find yourself in a fixed position and you're able to react to the subject moving, um, by sort of pivoting around and, and zooming in and you can stay in this fixed point and always have a good angle. Whereas like when you're shooting on a prime, you're required to move your feet. It's a single camera documentary show. Um, so you're reacting to the subject and you're moving around. You also need to get enough angles to be able to uh, have the editor chop up this hours long of verite into a concise 45 minute thing. So you're sort of thinking a little bit more, I think, like, um, like you would on a narrative project. You're, uh, you're moving your feet and you're finding, you're finding compositions um, that are unique and can be edited together. Um, but you're also nimble. So you're, you're moving with the subject and making, it allows you to the freedom to make sure that they're always in interesting light or that your relationship to them is, is moving. And I think that it gives the verite on that show, like a cinematic, a cinematic quality that it wouldn't have if we had, had shot on zooms and it's not like i said it's not just the optics it's it's what it forces you to do as an operator and how you're forced to sort of position yourself that the results in that adam bricker thank you so much for joining us today on go creative show the show is called hacks all the episodes are on uh hbo max right now so please do check it out you guys will absolutely love it they're half hour episodes you can just blow through they're like snackable half hour episodes just cram a few in in a night and you believe me will not stop watching i was telling him i went through the first two episodes prior to the interview and started the third and i'm like oh my god i have to interview him in five minutes i'm running out of time it's it's uh i don't know what the equivalent of page turner is for tv but this is what that is you kind of don't want to stop because it's uh it's just it's just so great the characters are awesome it looks amazing and uh it's a really fun show so you guys should check it out and where can people go adam to learn more about you yeah, I'm on, I'm on Instagram. Um, my handle is real Adam Bricker. And then I've got a website, adambricker.com. There it is. And we'll put it all in the show notes so you guys can check it out. So thank you so much, Adam, for coming on Go Creative Show. And we'd love to have you back for your next project. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. All right, I want to thank Adam Bricker, Director of Photography of Hacks on HBO. Such a good show. You guys are going to absolutely love it. So please check it out for yourself if you haven't seen it already. I also want to thank Connor Crosby from ignitionvisuals.com. He produces the show, puts it all together. And of course, Dave Siegel at siegelsound.com for mixing, mastering, and making the show sound so good. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, as well as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to know what's going on with me, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Ben Consoli. Ben Consoli. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next week on another episode of the Go Creative Show podcast for filmmakers.